This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Be sensed and perceived in this room and those who are listening in and watching from afar, Lord, because of the work of your Spirit in each of our hearts. Come, Lord, minister to us, Lord, by the power of your grace, we pray. Amen. If you can remain standing, hello, everybody. It's good to see you. We're back at the book of Galatians in chapter 3. If you would open up there if you have a copy of God's Word. If you want to use one of the black Bibles in the seat back, that's page 973. Last time we were in the book of Galatians, we finished chapter 2 two weeks ago where uh, it brought to a conclusion uh, the Apostle Paul's recollection of his encounter or his rebuke of the Apostle Peter. And now in chapter 3, uh, rather than recalling, this is now direct address. In other words, he's now addressing the Galatians very directly. So let's hear the word. I'll read three verses through six, one through six, and but we're focusing on one through five this morning. This is the word of the Lord. This is Paul speaking. He says, "Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?" It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer or experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it to all our hearts. Have a seat. Have a seat. Well, you haven't been here in a couple of weeks and maybe some of you are just joining us uh, today. Just a brief summary of some things uh, before we get to uh, the text. Paul, uh, in writing this letter, has established, first of all, that he is an, uh, an apostle on the same level as the Jerusalem apostles because he received the gospel directly from Jesus after his resurrection. He also established that he and the Jerusalem apostles agreed on what the gospel is. And then he recounted that confrontation with Peter because Peter's actions uh, negated, as it were, what he believed about the gospel. And he summed up the truth of the gospel in verse 16 of chapter 2. He looked down at it. If you have it, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. Three times he makes it very clear. Justification comes about by faith. Um, remember justification refers to what? The, the declaration of God that a person is considered not guilty or considered righteous or just in 
his eyes. And so this has been the main thesis and is the main argument of this letter, that a person is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, as it's been said. And so now, at this point, Paul launches in chapter 3 into a lengthy defense of this gospel. And he defends it from experience first, verses 1 through 5. That's where we're at today. He defends it from Scripture and the account of Abraham. And that will follow next week. And he also defends it um, from a theological argumentation. So this defense will go all the way into the middle of chapter 5. So we're looking at this first section, verses 1 through 5, where he begins with the experiential element of, their, uh, of, of the Christian faith. And he points out that the utter foolishness of exchanging hearing by faith for works of the law. Because Paul says it's either or, right? Uh, it's not a both and thing. Uh, because it is by faith, it cannot be by works. He says that three times. But these false teachers, these Judaizers, were mingling the two. Remember, they did say that faith in Jesus is good. However, you need to supplement faith in Jesus with obedience to the law of Moses. So believe in what Christ has done for you, and then let's see what you can do for Christ, you see. And this mingling, Paul says, this mingling of these two things together, that is to nullify the grace of God. That's how he concluded chapter two. I do not nullify the grace of God, like you do, Peter, he says. For if righteousness were through the law, in other words, he says, let's just hypothetically think about that. If righteousness could be done through obedience of the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But it could not be done through obedience of the law. As I've been reminded, what did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? If it can be any other way, right? But it can't be any other way. And so... He argues here now for the very first time that the Holy Spirit, he introduces the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, is the evidence, the decisive mark that one has been justified. Uh, he appeals, in other words, again, to that experiential component of the Christian life and he pairs the gift of the Holy Spirit which is something we experience he pairs it with what hearing by faith not works of the law there is an experiential component isn't there to the Christian life being a coming a Christian is not merely agreeing to a set of doctrines it's experiencing a new birth and re resulting in the indwelling or the receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's his main argument here. And it, you notice that it begins very vividly, begins very strong, and I think it just shows again the passion that Paul has uh, for these people, his love for them, and how much he hates when someone distorts the truth of the gospel of Christ. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. Uh, I don't think we should address, you know, Sunday school classes like that or, 
I wouldn't address any church like that, really, but here's the passion of Paul. Oh, foolish Galatians. That's an exclamation. It's a direct address. He gets their attention. And then he asks a question, who has bewitched you? (laughs) Why does he ask things like that? He's astonished. He just can't believe it. He's amazed. When he says foolish, let's take a look at those two words, foolish and bewitched. Foolish, he's not criticizing their intelligence. Highly intelligent people can make foolish decisions, right? And do foolish things. What is he criticizing? He's criticizing their unwillingness to use their minds. Not their lack of intelligence, their unwillingness to think through the implications of what they're doing and they're following their moral inclinations of the flesh, which is what? To start trusting in yourselves again. Self-confidence leads to self-righteousness. He can't believe they're doing this so quickly after having received the grace of God so freely. Remember how he started in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which he says is really no gospel at all. And then he says, it's as if someone has cast a spell on you. That's how amazed it is. Who has bewitched you? Now, word bewitched now, it's a very interesting word. It's the only time it's used in the Bible, but it was a very common word in the ancient world in the time of Paul. And in the ancient world, there was this widespread superstition, uh, the fear of an evil eye. In other words, that there was people or sorcerers who could look at you and when, when, they, when they focused their evil eye upon you, it's almost like they could hypnotize you, right, and lead you into doing something against your will. Now later, what's Paul say? I, 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 I placarded before your eyes Christ crucified, but now it's as, it's as if as you've fallen under the spell of the evil eye. <laughs> who has bewitched you. Now, when I read that and I was studying that, looking back into the history of that, first thing I thought about was not the television show Bewitched, by the way. It wasn't that, just so you know. The first thing I thought about was the movie Jungle Book. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, the story Jungle Book by, by Kipling. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but my mom and my dad took me to see the early cartoon version of it at a drive-in. Remember what a drive-in is? Yeah, okay your car, you see the film, huge, in Oakland. It was in the stadium driving. And there's the one scene there uh, where Mowgli, the lead character, the young Indian boy, is being lulled, right, into sleep by Ka, the serpent. And the way they depicted it in the cartoon version in those days was that uh, this, uh, Ka's eyes are kind of spinning in circles, right? And he's looking at Mowgli's eyes. And when Mowgli's eyes are transfixed on Ka's eyes, Mowgli's eyes start spinning. I was scared to death. I was a little kid, you know. And so the evil eye, you know, he's, it's like he was hypnotizing him, casting a spell upon him. And what happened? Well, Mowgli was becoming unaware. He was becoming unaware of what was really happening. And what was happening? Ka was coiling himself around him, right? About the python, about, about to crush, crush him. And along comes Bagheera, right? The Black Panther. He pulls on his tail and sets him free. Uh, Paul's kind of like Bagheera here, okay? 
He's saying, wake up, people. Who's bewitched you? Who's lulling you into sleep that you're letting your guard down? You don't understand this, this false doctrine is coiling itself around you and it's going to lead you to destruction. I don't think Paul actually believed in the superstition of the evil lie, but uh, basically he's, he's, he's using it, right? He's making use of that, something they would have understood and would have related to. Paul's point is simply this. Believers can let their guard down. You, me, we can become vulnerable to error because of evil spiritual influence. Evil spiritual influence. And I've seen it time and again, a, a believer can be slowly enticed away, drift away from gospel purity, from freedom in Christ from the sufficiency of Christ for my justification and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit for my sanctification. In other words, all, we can drift away from trusting that all I need for this life and godliness has been given to me through my union with Christ. You see? And we start drifting away. And so it's important to, to be able to identify if the culture has some coils around you, it's important to begin to identify in your own thinking, am I being lulled to sleep and my guard is going down in some area of my thinking where I am drifting away in my thinking from the sufficiency of Christ in some sense, maybe not in the sense they were, but leaning upon human thinking and other sorts of reasoning rather than trusting that all I have and all I need is given to me in Christ Jesus. You see. Now, what was their error? In what way were they being uh, bewitched? Well, it's seen in verse three. Are you so foolish? Here it is. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? by the flesh, to perfect us, to bring something to a successful end. He, he says, that's how they were being lulled. You began one way and now, now you're abandoning that and now you're gonna bring your, your Christian life to perfection, completion by the deeds of the flesh. That's where they were being enticed. So Paul is saying in essence this, beloved, He's saying the way you continue in the Christian life is the same as the way you begin the Christian life, which is fundamentally what? By hearing with faith. <laughs> By hearing with faith. That's how you become justified, like Abraham. He believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. And that's the way you walk with him daily in your life. By hearing with faith faith. That's what he's getting at in this text, how to live the Christian life. And so their argument, the Judaizers' argument was, to faith in Christ, you add the works of the law that you might secure justification and be perfected. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. It is all by hearing with faith. You begin that way and you go forward that way. And so to break the spell, what Paul is saying is this, remember how you became a Christian. Go back to point A. 
If you're wondering how to live, how to advance as a Christian, well, go back to point A. How did you become a Christian, he says, because that's how you continue. Now, he drives this home through, through these five rhetorical questions that he, that he has there in, in rapid fire. I remember a, a rhetorical question is a question that uh, the author, the person posing the question, thinks the answer is obvious, right? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? No, all right. You received it by the Spirit. So I'm not going to go over each of the five questions. The way I'm going to do is I'm going to sum up what he's saying in those five rhetorical questions with two affirmations, okay? And the first affirmation about remember, going backwards, is this. You received the gift of the Spirit by hearing with faith. Let's go back to how it all started, right? The Spirit is the mark of belonging, and you received the Spirit by hearing with faith, and Paul describes about how it all happened. The context is in verse one. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's going back to when he went there to the cities in Galatia. And he says there, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You might think, what's he mean portrayed? It sounds like a good Friday drama presentation or something, you know? Somebody came up and carried a cross. No, no, what he's referring to is what? The word means to placard, to hold up. He's saying that his preaching was so clear and vivid on those days by the power of spirit, of the spirit, that it was almost as if right before their very eyes they saw the crucified Savior. It's almost as if in hearing Paul preach under the influence of the Spirit, their hearing became seeing. And they saw the significance of who Jesus is and what happened on the cross. That's what he's saying. And the emphasis is on Christ crucified. Crucified. Why? Because of the all-sufficiency of what he has done. Paul says to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified crucified that's he's the very heart is Christ an example yes he's a moral example certainly but salvation comes in understanding Christ crucified and the cross is an offense why because we've said before the cross makes clear the utter helplessness of human beings it had to be done this way there was no other way we cannot contribute Anything, And so Paul says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. That's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, uh, philosophers, that's moronic, right? But that's the only hope. And he says and later in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. Christ crucified. When he says nothing else among you, it doesn't mean he never talked about anything. Paul would talk about family life and other things. He, the point is he connects all of it to the, like spokes to the hub of the wheel, which is what? Christ crucified, because it all comes from him, right? Two weeks ago, we talked about how Christ is the double cure, the double cure from sin's guilt and sin's power, right? We received the whole Christ through our union with him, uh, 
And he describes it in a very interesting way. He uses, I mean, just to get in a little grammar, he uses a form uh, of a participle, a perfect participle, which emphasizes a continuing state. He's, he's talking about Christ crucified as a continuing state. In other words, he's saying that when he preached Christ to them, as he recollects the experience of preaching Christ to them, uh, crucified, and he, he held them up, it's almost as if th that vision of who Christ is and he died for me like that was burned into their spiritual retinas, you know, burned into their memories. It's still there. The crucified Savior, the all-sufficient uh, atonement uh, that comes through Christ crucified. And then what happened at that moment? Well, a lot of things happen. A lot of things happen uh, simultaneously, just to, not to take them in any order, but they believed, right? Hearing accompanied by faith. That's what happened at the moment. They heard and they believed. That's where faith comes from, right? Romans 10, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from what? Hearing. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There's some there's just some uh, disagreement, minor debate on whether word about Christ or word that Christ is saying in your conscience at that moment. But here it's clear he's talking about the crucified Christ. So faith comes from hearing and hearing about Christ on a cross as sufficient for our sins. You know, I heard, I, I don't know about you, I, I imagine with some of you it's like this. I heard the gospel many times and I didn't believe the, the, I heard the gospel, it was not accompanied by faith. Maybe that was your experience. I'm sure that God sometimes saves people the very first time they hear the gospel. I, I know that happened with my wife, Sherry. It was the first person I ever evangelized was her. Remember I told you before, I said, wow, this is gonna be easy, you know? No. <laughs> that was just God's gift to me. <laughs> well, I heard the gospel many times and it was not accompanied with faith. But Paul says, I went to Galatia and, and I preached the gospel there. I preached Christ crucified there. It was almost like it was just burned into your, into your, into your memories and what happened is you heard with faith. That's what happened in that experience. Well, how does that happen? Salvation comes from faith. Faith comes from hearing, but we can hear and hear and not believe, but we, someone hears and they do believe. What happens? It's the work of God. God is at work in the person's heart whom, we, whom he is bringing to faith, right? 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, uh, Paul describes it this way. Listen to it. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, meaning hidden, right, covered, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. What a thought. Those who don't believe and remain unbelieving until the end are perishing. He says, but in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light, not a physical light, but the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who he is, what he's done, who is the very image of God, you see. Now, let me pause there for a second. That's true of all of us until we're believers, right? <laughs> We're all unbelievers at some point. That's how we, that's how we start the, this life. 
and, and, and as we live this life, we're unbelievers and our, our perception is blinded. Our spiritual understanding is blinded to who Jesus of Nazareth is truly and the true value of his life, death, and resurrection. And so Paul says this. He goes on and he says, uh, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. Chapter 4, verse 6, 2 Corinthians, he says, For God who said, so here's what happens. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's he talking about? The creation, right? In the very beginning. Let there be light. The God who said, let there be light. He has shown in our hearts. He has shown in our hearts. It's as if he said, let there be light in Tony's heart. Let there be light in Mary's heart. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light, not a bright physical light, but the light of the knowledge, understanding, perception, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's as if I see him crucified and understand I was crucified with Christ. He is my Lord and Savior, you see. That's what happened to these uh, Galatians. Hearing becomes seeing. Hearing becomes seeing with the eyes of faith when God causes the light of the truth to to awaken you and to, to make sense to you. It's all God's doing. And when Paul was preaching that to the Galatians in various city, cities there, when he was preaching that, at that very moment, they could see Jesus as their crucified Savior with the eyes of faith clearer than those who were standing around mocking Jesus, with, watching him with their physical eyes be crucified. They saw the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. He is the son of God who came into this world to take upon himself the wrath that you and I deserve and that fully satisfies God the Father for his justice against our sins. He was buried, he was raised the third day that we might be justified and have eternal life in him. And that's the gospel. And Paul says, that's what happened in Galatia and this is how it happened. It happened because God opened their eyes and shone that light for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. Not as a result of works that no man, no one could boast. And at that moment, a lot of other wonderful things take place, right? We said we are united with Christ, right? He made you alive together with him and he, are, he is our double cure. We are justified and then we are empowered by how? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He comes and resides in us. And so this is Paul's main argument here. You received the Spirit. He entered your life. How did that come about? Because you started observing the Sabbath and special diets and, and were circumcised? Is that how the Spirit came? No. How did the Spirit suddenly enter your life and and enter your heart because you heard with faith. That's it. That's his argument here. A definite spiritual event took place and that event was marked by the fact that they received the indwelling person of God, the Holy Spirit. They didn't seek the Spirit. 
They didn't purchase the Spirit. Somebody wanted to in the book of Acts, right? They didn't earn him. They didn't merit him. They didn't try to acquire him, scratch for him. They simply were born again and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that did not come about through anything else. And that, for Paul, is the singular mark of someone who's justified. Here is a Christian. Two, three weeks ago, we said, what is a Christian? Paul never uses the word Christian. He says, you're in Christ, or Christ is in you. So who is the Christian? The Christian is the one in whom the Spirit dwells, the Spirit of Christ. Uh, and that this is the definitive mark is made clear in other places by Paul. For example, in Romans 8, uh, I read this a few weeks ago again. I'll read again, Romans 8 9. He says to these Roman Christians, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, period. Yeah, you're not, there's no fence riding here, right? You're either in or you're out. You either have the Spirit or you don't. You may be a very religious person. You may have impeccable church attendance. You may tithe a tenth of your mint and cumin like the Pharisees. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to him. That is the singular mark for Paul. That's the hinge upon which his entire argument uh, is turning. Remember to what he said to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesus, the end of that beautiful introduction we looked at a few weeks ago, 11 times he says, in him or in the beloved one, etc., in Christ. Verse 13, he says, in him, in Christ, you also, talking to believers, you also, when you heard the word of truth, there's the hearing, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, promised from the Old Testament, who is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You know, I say these things, and sometimes we could just move right for, forward through. It's like sailed through things we're used to hearing. Just catch your breath for a minute and think about this. God, God the Spirit, if you're a Christian, lives in you. Think of that. What an amazing thought. And his presence in your soul is the engagement ring, that pledge of the great marriage supper is coming, right? He's saying, and he won't take that back. He has come to reside in the church corporately, and he resides in every Christian individually. He alone is the seal of ownership, the mark that says you belong to God the Father, you see. And so the only question is, has that happened to you? I didn't ask if you're religious. Didn't ask if you attend church. Didn't ask if you have a Bible. I didn't ask if you, if you give any offerings. I didn't ask any other question. My question is simply this. Does the Holy Spirit of God indwell you? Because for Paul, you see, that's the whole point. That you've become a new creation. And it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen 
by keeping the law of Moses. And so what Paul does in verse 3, look down at verse 3 if you would, is he ties together the implications of his first two rhetorical questions in verse 1 and 2, or what he says, is, excuse me, in verse 1 and 2, he ties the two together and he shows the utter foolishness of their self-contradiction. He says, I portrayed Christ as crucified to you. It was as if he was burned into your retinas and then you receive the, the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith. So are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? What, 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 what foolishness, he says. What did you have to do with your justification and your reception of the Spirit? Nothing. You received it. God was at work. In fact, I think he's making a subtle point in verse 3 when he says, having begun, notice what's the next preposition, by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit. In other words, he's not talking about the moment in which you received the Spirit. You received the Spirit, why? Because you heard with faith. Why did you have faith? Because Scripture says you're born hostile, dead in your trespasses and sins, right? Scripture says the mindset in the flesh cannot keep the law of God, doesn't even want to keep the law of God. And so how is it that you heard with faith on that day? It's because of the Spirit. It all began by the Spirit. In other words, the first mover was God. The first mover was the Holy Spirit. He caused you to be born again united with Christ and in that same almost simultaneous moment in your experience you saw Christ for who he was and you placed your recently received gift of faith you placed that faith in him you see you began by the spirit then you received the spirit and now what now you're going to perfect the Christian life by your own set of rules and, and following the law of Moses no that era has ended we are now in the age of the spirit is what he's saying to them it's astounding when you, when you think about it. The work began that way. And the, and the, and the thing is just to looking at it practically, it just doesn't work, does it, to try and perfect your Christian life by keeping certain rules, right? You go for a little bit and then you know what happens? You flub it up. Let's be honest. <laughs> we flub it up. We come back, Lord, you know, next time I'll, I'll, I'll do better. No, you won't. You might go a little while, and then we're back here again, right? Another lap around Mount Zion, man. Keep going. Why? Because you cannot perfect yourself by trying to keep a set of rules. But you don't advance the Christian life that way. You advance the same way you begin it. What? Hearing the truth about Christ, sufficient for my right standing, sufficient for my struggles, right? Through the Holy Spirit. And in hearing with faith, the Spirit empowers me to produce the fruit that he wants me to do. It all began with what? It all began with the work of the Spirit. Uh, just to give you a couple of support verses for that, just briefly, because I know for some it's maybe the uh, first time you've heard this uh, this way. I won't get off on a tangent too far. 1 John 5.1 says this, everyone who believes, present tense, the believing ones, have been born of God. Perfect tense, meaning something done in the past 
with ongoing results. In other words, faith is the result of the new birth, not the cause of the new birth. See, regeneration precedes faith. It may be simultaneously in your experience, right? But the point is, logically speaking, the spirit has to move first because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Your mind is hostile towards God. You may not think you were an enemy of God, but that's what you were. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understand. There's none who seeks after God. And so John says it right. The Spirit is the one who begins this miraculous process of hearing with faith that moment. Um, how does he do it? He does it with the Word, the Gospel. It's hearing the good news of the crucified Savior Hearing the good news with the crucified Savior, maybe after a dozen times like it was for me, but this time I hear with faith. Why? Because I had been born again right at that moment, and the new birth resulted in my capacity to have this faith and place it in Jesus Christ. You see, salvation is all of the Lord. Here's a, we looked at First Peter some, some time ago, chapter 1 Peter said this about the Old Testament prophets in 1 Peter 1 12 he says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven they preached the good news the gospel to you the word and they did so by the Holy Spirit speaking there in part of what was happening to those who were communicating, preaching in the Spirit, speaking in the Spirit, evangelizing in the Spirit, and it's also the work of the Spirit in the individual, right? We must be born from above, born of the Spirit. Later he'll say uh, about the Word, that the Spirit used the Word, when verse 23 of chapter 1 again, I'm in First Peter still, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so it's word and spirit, word and spirit, the spirit empowering the good news of the gospel, and suddenly, you may have heard it a dozen times. You may have gone to church your whole life. But on that day, at that moment, at that moment, he made you alive together with Christ. You were born again. It all began by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. It's been uh, illustrated this way. It's like as fast as striking a match, right? As soon as you strike a match, what do you have? Three things. You have fire, heat, and light fire, heat, and light immediately. Hearing, faith, new birth, etc. It all happens, but someone had to strike the match. I'm here to tell you, by the grace of God and his infinite love and mercy, if you're a Christian, it's because he struck the match in your soul. And he made you alive together with Christ. And at, at that instant, it was your faith you put in Christ, absolutely, but it was a faith that was a gift by the, because the Spirit struck that match in your soul well the main point here then is this because it all begins by the spirit 
and that led to your receiving the Spirit? How could you possibly think now that you're gonna perfect yourself by, by obeying the law of Moses, by the flesh? When he uses flesh, he's talking about that, that self-confidence that human beings have that they can contribute to their standing and development and their transformation in any way by their own power. Apart from Christ, you see. That's the problem. Or apart from the Spirit. That's what he's referring to when he says flesh. Now he's setting these two together and he's going to return. He's going to talk now about the Spirit over and over, right? All the way through chapter 5. And he has set two, two things against each other. First of all, it's works against faith. And now we're hearing for the first time flesh against Spirit. Works against faith to be justified and flesh against spirit to be sanctified, to be growing, transforming, moving forward in the Christian life. So that's his main point. It's utter foolishness, says Paul. How could you be so, so foolish? And one thing's interesting that Paul uses the same two verbs in Philippians 1.6. You know it well. One version or another, you've, many of you heard this, he who began a good work in you will be what faithful to complete it. Those are the same two verbs Paul uses here in Galatians, which he wrote before Philippians. You began by the Spirit, hearing by faith, and now you're going to complete it yourself? No, no, he who began a good work in you, he is the one who will be faithful to what? To complete it. <laughs> and how will he complete it? By the power of the Spirit, hearing with faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is getting at. That's how one lives the Christian life. I won't explore that more now because, man, he's going to really unfold that in, in chapter 5. And, of course, they were false teachers were saying you have to mingle. You have to mingle the works of the law with your faith in Christ in order to be perfected, in order to come to that place of maturity and be sure you're justified. And then still reflecting on the absurdity of this whole thing, he says something further in verse four, another question. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Now there's a discussion here about the word suffer. Uh, I don't know if you have a little footnote or a marginal note in your translation, I do. And I'm glad I do because the, the word here uh, that, that is used here that means suffer, it means suffer in most of Paul's context, but it also means to experience, to experience. And I think, I really think, you know, it may be the minority view, but I think, I think that's what Paul's getting at here, meaning he hasn't been discussing suffering at all. There's nothing else that tells us that the Galatians were persecuted by this time or anything. I think what Paul is saying is having experienced all these things that I'm talking about, having, having seen Christ in your soul, in your heart, as crucified for you, saved by grace, justified uh, by grace, having received the Holy Spirit, which no doubt has brought about transformation in your whole life, have experiencing all these things, was that all vain? Was that useless because now you think you need to you know, get it done. <laughs> you need to complement and supplement what Christ has done. So I think that's, uh, that's what uh, Paul is getting at here. Now, he doesn't think that it was in vain because, you know, he saw what happened to them. That's why he says, if indeed it was in vain. 
You know, it's so easy to forget how miraculous our conversion was. Amen? Especially the older, the the further we become uh, distanced from that moment of God's grace touching us, you know. It's easy to forget how awash we were at that moment with the reality that God loves me and uh, I'm forgiven. It's, it's, It's utterly complete and I've just trusted in Christ and that's it and it's glorious and to some degree we have some kind of experience to that extent, to some extent that is, and it's so easy to drift from that and to begin thinking that Jesus is not enough. On that day, at that moment, Jesus was everything to me. I mean, the night I got on my knees in my bedroom, it was, he, I mean, he's it, it's done, it's incredible, I'm forgiven, he's with me now, he's gonna walk with me, it's just glorious, praise God. And before, before long, before long, you're, 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 you're forgetting that. What did, Paul, what, did John, through Jesus, what did Jesus, through the Apostle John, the book of Revelation, say to the church of Ephesus? You guys got a lot of things great, you know, but you left your first love. You forgot about it all. How glorious it was. So Paul says, go back in your mind to how it all started. Go back. How did it start? Did this glorious miracle take place because you acted like a good Jew? No. What happened? You heard by faith, and God saved you. That's it. And now he parallels that in verse 5 with the present tense. The second point is God continues to supply you with the Spirit how? By hearing with faith. It didn't only begin by hearing with faith, but he continues to supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you. How? By hearing with faith, or hearing by faith, not by works of the law. So as if, if your past experience and your memory of it is a bit dull, <laughs> he says, let's look at your life today. <laughs> Let's look at your life today. And he uses the present tense here. Now, I do want to say that there's several good New Testament commentators, John Stott and others, who say he's not talking about the present tense in their experience right then. He's just talking as summing up the past. God was the one who supplied. God was the one who worked miracles when Paul was there. But the present tense for me and my understanding, as well as others, is that he is pointing these Galatians to their congregational spiritual experience even in the present. God continues to supply the Spirit to us. That may be a strange thought to you, but he continues to supply the Spirit. uh, and, And the word there, supply, means lavishly supply the Spirit to us. How does he do that? The Spirit's a person, right? And He indwells us. And we don't receive a person in parts, right? Like we said of Christ, you receive the whole Christ, not half of Christ. And the same with the Spirit. We don't receive the, the person of the Spirit in parts, but it's God who decides to what degree the Spirit will manifest His presence with us. That's what revival is. It's not the Spirit finally coming to us. It is the Spirit who indwells us, being supplied in power to us. 
And that's why we pray for revival. And so God is the one who is supplying the spirit in your life, he says them, and he, to them, and that's happening how? By hearing with faith, not because of your keeping the law of Moses. And he who works miracles or powers or signs among you, does the Father do that again by works of the law, by hearing with faith? Now, what things Paul was getting at, we don't know exactly. He doesn't tell us, but we are reminded what, especially of the early church's experience of those great charismatic gifts of, of healings and things of that sort. But Paul's argument is not only did it begin by the Spirit, even your life right now in the Spirit is being given to you by hearing with faith. In those miracles, let's not just think of sensational things. Conversions are miracles. <laughs> and in fact, Paul uses the same word works, works, in chapter 1 when he says God was working in, uh, or chapter 2, in his ministry and Peter's. Chapter 2, verse 8, he, he who worked, he who energized things through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked, energized things also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Don't forget, every person that comes to faith has just experienced a miracle. The working of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, how does this all come about? Why is this happening in the life, your life and in the church? Is it because you're following the law of Moses? Or is it because what? Because of hearing with faith, meaning hearing the truth about who Christ is as our Lord now. All the promises of God that we get from Scripture, they are yes and amen in Him. And so hearing what God says to us about trust Him for this, trust Him for that, uh, live this way, trust Him, etc., all of that, hearing with faith, we are empowered by the Spirit. And then miraculous things happen. Like what? Like the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, it says, here's what happens when you, when you live like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, self-control, so forth. But let's just take love for a moment. Supernatural love. The capacity to love your enemies, says Jesus. That comes about because of the Spirit in your life, you see. The capacity to forgive people you would have never forgiven before you were born again. But now you're brought to a place in your life where you could understand, I need to forgive and I will forgive because God forgave me. That, you see, that is the workings of the Spirit. And it's coming about how? By hearing with faith. And it's the Spirit who produces joy and peace, self-control, and particularly above all things, love. Yeah, it's the, it is the Spirit's job, beloved. It is the Spirit's job, this primary role we're told in the Gospel of John was what? To magnify Christ, to make clear to us who Jesus is, that we might love him, that we might follow him, that we might serve him, that we might worship him. It is the Spirit's job to illumine Christ, to illumine God's word in relation to Christ, that we might trust Christ, trust him for his all sufficiency, and begin to live for Christ. That's the Spirit's job. And when he does that, and we hear it, he grants us faith, and hearing with faith, he produces the fruit of a transformed life. That will not happen by putting together your little litmus test of rules and trying to live by them. It is the work 
of God the Spirit. Boy, and he brings these two ideas together. Galatians 5.25, I'll just quote there. If we live by the Spirit, that is, we come to life by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit, you see. Because that is what the Christian life is. I can't wait till we get to chapter 5. I hope you all be here, you know, <laughs> when we get to chapter 5, right? So what happened? We received life by the Spirit coming to us. He came to us how? By hearing. Hearing what? The gospel. What happened? It was mingled with faith. Why was it mingled with faith? Because I was made alive together with him. I was born from above. And now that that's how the life, my life with Christ began. I live every day with Christ that way. By seeking Christ in his word and trusting what God says. Believe what he says. Believe that he is all-sufficient. Boy, I tell you, the, um, it's just hard to sometimes, you know, dissect the difference between what's motivating me, right? Is, 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 is confidence in who Christ is what's motivating me is it, or some sort of guilty self-conscience here, right? What is moving me? The Father wants you, we've said it in this book, we say it again, the Father wants you to trust him, believe him, right? Don't just believe in God, believe God, right? Dear friend who's now with the Lord, a pastor I've known for many years, he would use the illustration of this account of, of, of a fire that took place in Harlem of New York decades ago. It was a fire uh, that was taking place in an apartment complex and a little blind girl was alone in a fourth story apartment uh, she was standing at the window blind the place was going up in flames and the firemen were getting desperate because they could not fit the ladder truck in that tight um, those tight quarters of those apartments in New York and those old streets and so their solution was to put together a net and everything they could and to hold it and to scream at the little girl, jump, jump, jump. But she would not. She didn't know their voice. She didn't trust them. She was blind. She could feel the heat, but she would not jump. They finally got her father there and they handed him the bullhorn. And he addressed her by name and said, honey, there's a fire. You need to jump. Trust me. Just jump, honey. You'll be okay. There's a net. And she jumped. And the count says that she did not break a single bone or strain a muscle because she was utterly relaxed as she fell down and just cast herself hearing her father's voice, you see. God wants you to respond to his voice, to believe what he says, when he speaks to you in his word about who Christ is, what he is for you, of the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit, and so forth. Believe him. Believe his word. Trust his word. What did Ka, the python, say to Mowgli as he was winding himself around him? Trust in me. That freaked me out, I said. <laughs> Just hearing that weird voice, trust in me. I think 
the culture is constantly saying to us, trust in me. You know, Paul used the singular when he said, who has bewitched you? Singular. I like to think this. Paul knew very well who had been there. They knew who had been there teaching this false doctrine. But behind whoever was there historically lies the real serpent who since the very beginning says, trust in me. Did God really say? No, no, you trust in me. Where is the culture? Where is the culture shifting your trust to? Because God says, if we trust him, and lean not upon our own understanding, right? He's the one who will make our path straight. Let's pray and finish our time together. Lord God, we're struck by the power of these words. We confess, Lord, readily our readiness, God, to drift, our weakness. And certainly, Lord, if something could happen, something like this could happen to those who are discipled by the Apostle Paul, it can happen in our own midst. And doubtless, Lord, it's happening right now in the lives of some. I pray, Lord, that you would break the spell in the hearts and minds of anyone who is being enticed, Lord, by falsehood. And that you would grant faith, Lord, that miracle of faith to someone, Lord, to any who need it, Lord, both here who are hearing or are away. Do so, Lord, that you might be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for your gracious love for us. Help us to trust what you say and lean not upon our understanding or the cultures for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that the manifestation of the Spirit in our own lives, Lord, bringing about the fruit of the Spirit will be increased, Lord, that this congregation will be marked, Lord, by love, joy, peace, self-control, and so forth. In our marriages, in our relationships, among singles, among all of us, Lord, together, please do so. And Father God, as we finish, we bring our gifts to you in response to your grace to us, Lord. Be magnified in our offerings, Lord. Be with those who cannot give, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.